0: I I am the editor of FinTech Nexus News, and you might see my byline on the daily newsletter for those attempts at humor that sometimes land. Um, Always appreciate feedback on our newsletters. And so I'm I'm thrilled to be hosting this session. uh, Similar to your position, um, lending to underbanked has always been something I've been interested in dating back to when I was editor at Bankless Times back in 2012. So this is, Wow, it's been uh, almost a dozen years now. And uh, just a reminder, when the QR code comes up, comes up on the screen, that links to the QA app, where you can scan and then submit questions for the end of the session. So we'll save some time for that. So Andrew, why don't you introduce yourself and, and tell me a bit about the story of
1: Arcadia? Well, thank you. Thank you for having us and for all the standards in the back. There's plenty of seats up front if you want to come on down. Um, uh Arcadia's roots really emanate from insurance Uh, so many years ago uh, we helped create the first US corporate vehicle at Lloyd's of London and our chief underwriter Brent Clark uh, formerly came from the insurance world and one of the interesting things in the insurance world is that you you do a lot of modeling around probability but you lack data or at least historically so if you could underwrite automobile drivers and know how fast they go, uh, when they speed, how many red lights they go through or whatnot, similar to what the Amazon delivery drivers have today, you could underwrite with a great deal of specificity. But in the insurance world, you don't have that. And often as we think about underbanked as an example, it's similar in that it's under data. And that's the reality of what you have to deal with anytime you're gonna enter an arrangement uh, whereby you're extending credit to them. Uh, Just to follow up a little bit on Arcadia, so by virtue of that insurance expertise uh, in 2010, we were approached by Renault LaPlanche and Lending Club to write an insurance policy that would guarantee the principal on the retail investor's capital that was being used to purchase loans on the platform. So at the point in time that Renault approached us, they had more borrower demand than investor capital. So they thought with an insurance policy that would bring on more investor capital, even out the scales and increase throughput or originations. So we said no, we couldn't do that for a myriad of reasons, but that we could create the very first fund focused at that point in time exclusively on buying loans originated by Lending Club and where we would enhance our investors' return by using moderate leverage that was provided to us by our friends at Silicon Valley Bank. So that's 2012. We were the very first fund to have a senior credit facility committed entirely to Lending Club loans at the point in time. And we grew from that point forward uh, in partnership with Lending Club. We were the first and only buyer of uh, loans related to new programs that Lending Club was originating. So that might have included things like their patient finance uh, via their acquisition of Springstone, business loans, and other, other ones that they were researching. And, and along that way, we continue to grow our credit facilities with Silicon Valley Bank, Wells Fargo. We sponsored the very first rated securization of Lending Club Collateral. And we used our position uh, that was, uh, I guess, hard-earned by virtue of the mistakes we made, but, but also very much uh, rewarded by the relationships we built with venture capitalists, obviously with Silicon Valley Bank, with lawyers, investment bankers, and most importantly, entrepreneurs that were in and around what we now call the fintech space, and certainly it wasn't called that when we started, and used all those relationships to expand the portfolio and the fund from Lending Club exclusively uh, to today, we have what we affectionately refer to as north of 20 loan factories, so those are the entities that originate and service the loans. Uh, or embedded finance, and they run the gamut from uh, companies in Africa like Trade Depot, which I think is the definition of embedded finance, similar to what the CEO of Marquetta said today. That's a business that provides uh, groceries to bodegas, 25,000 customers already, where the groceries have no access to capital in terms of credit. So Trade Depot provides them with a line of credit. We're the balance sheet behind that. Predominantly though the work we do is here in the US. So I don't know is that enough background so we want to get into other
0: stuff? That's fantastic, and it's it's not surprising you've been in the game that long you're gonna have peaks and valleys and and that really sets you up to learn about how to innovate even faster going forward and We've heard a lot today and yesterday actually about how fintech is helping to make lending more efficient overall But has fintech helped the underbanked gain fairer access to credit?
1: I would say that um, we're, I'm certainly opinionated, and I think my partners are as well. Excellent. <laughs> I don't know that I would use the word fairer in relation to anything in financial services. I think financial services are the definition of unfair and that we have a long, long way to go to correct that. And all one has to do is to look at the, the income Generated so it's not revenue, it's income that the big banks generate from overdraft fees, as an example. So I don't think the word fair exists in financial services. By definition, it's tilted and biased towards the rich, and the rich have access to easier credit, lower interest rates, lower fees, et cetera. So I would say that, that the positive is that credit is available to a larger population today. And that's largely the result of additional data or additional methodologies that you can employ to come up with a probabilistic analysis that will give you some confidence around how a pool of loans will behave over various economic cycles.
0: Yeah, and that deals nicely into the follow-up question, which is, when lending to underbanked, how much more access is needed to different
1: data sources? Uh, as much data as you can get your hands on. So again, underbanked to me means underdated. And so people often use the term thin files. Uh, we, we do a lot of these programs, and I would say that absent data that's available to you, you really have to employ tertiary modalities, which would include behavioral economics. And I think the behavioral economics are as important as the analytics that you can glean. So yesterday, we had our friends at Tricolor win an award uh, as one of the uh, or the best inclusion lender. Uh, we provided financing to Tricolor many years ago and were refinanced out by Aries and JP Morgan. And the, the hallmark of, of that lending activity was they had very little data, traditional data. This, they provide automobile loans. Uh, So you didn't have a FICO that had years of history, therefore the file was thick. It was quite a thin file. But the behavioral economics was that the population that they're focused on is undocumented immigrants, and it's completely legal. They've actually won awards with the Treasury for years. Uh, That population, from a behavioral economics standpoint, is one that uh, does not want to be noticed. It's one that doesn't want to draw attention to itself. So when you think about making repayments uh, or, or going late on your loan, which draws attention to you, you instinctively don't want to do that. So that, combined with the fact that the automobile or the vehicle was likely very important to their work and their income and the family, meant that the automobile loans were at the top of the stack in their list of repayments or priority payments. So what we do, John, is is where we don't have specific data, we look to any other aspects uh, and data that we can find that provide us with insights as to how they might behave in our analysis. So behavioral economics is, you know, it it cannot be underemphasized.
0: And I would guess that um, with the resurgence of AI talk in being able to make those determinations in, in that process. Is that something that's front and center now and it maybe has been for some time?
1: Analytics as a whole in lending and in all realms, whether it's uh, lending, insurance, other aspects that result in modeling, I would say that the default is we want things, and maybe particularly men, want to have things be an equation and have it make sense. And so there's a lot of work that gets done around analytics, whether it's in Lending Club or other aspects, where you're constantly tinkering with a scorecard because you think if you make this change, it's going to result in a panacea. Um, the reality is that's not the case. Humans are too complex. Uh, situations, peaks and valleys, or whatever nice words you want to describe, uh, happen in their lives. Uh, we, we provide balance sheet to what is referred to as a buy here, pay here. That's a very thin credit file uh, consumer that's looking for a car loan. And the owner of that business will tell you that roughly one-third of, of every customer has some life-changing event that's going on, loss of job, health issues, divorce, et cetera. So the analytics are absolutely fundamental and you have to do them and AI is a component of that. and And AI is something that's actually been employed in our world for four plus years. Um, We have a program whereby MIT students come to us every January. And I think it was four years ago, they're computer science students. We use them. And roughly half, almost half of our team are technologists and analytics, PhD in applied physics, master's in quantum engineering, things like that. You use that information to create some baseline. Then what you rely on is the skill of somebody like Brent Clark. Who, who can come in and modify up or down what the baseline analytics are telling you to incorporate the behavioral economics and other aspects. Yeah, it makes total
0: sense. So really it's, it's a, an influence, not an arbitrator. It's something that you look at in the process, but it's not taking over yet, thankfully. Um, let's look at uh, payroll, and FinTech is starting to gain access to payroll. So how much
1: safer is it to access payroll for a borrower to repay? So payroll payroll, ties into another component uh, which I should have addressed in your earlier question, which is other data you rely on. So payroll in combination with cash flow are paramount for the thin credit files. So everyone's aware of Plaid and Finicity and other tools that you can use now to access um, cash in, in terms of their bank accounts if they have them. That's very important in your underwriting model. And then uh, the payroll side is actually, this is again goes back to not using analytical data, but I would say common sense, which at the end of the day, a lot of this is. We helped uh, create a company in 2018 called Workplace Credit. It was focused on providing uh, unsecured consumer loans to to populations that have low turnover in their jobs. So if you're a federal employee, you likely have very low turnover. The government doesn't, I say this historically, not pay its bills. And <laughs> and there's good pension and other benefits in those programs. So you, you don't tend to leave that job. Uh, certain jobs in hospitals, other things like that, have that same characteristic. So we created a, a loan product targeting that population that was going to specifically offer a lower alternative or lower interest rate than they would have gotten from other lenders because we provided them with the ability to repay us directly via their payroll. So we had to create the software to do that because nobody was doing that. If we fast forward today, John, uh, that company no longer makes the loans because COVID came along and there was plenty of excess cash in the system. So we we effectively shut down the lending component and focus entirely on the payroll technology, and it's called PayWallet, that allows lenders to provide to their customers the ability to directly pay off their loan or loans via their paycheck. So I think that, in combination with cash, will ultimately... uh, equal or supplant even FICO in terms of your lending focused on consumers. We employ MIT's database around cost of living in uh, all parts of the country to essentially, in our consumer lending businesses, model out their actual cash flows and calculate what free cash they really have for their automobile loan and not approve anything that would go above that, uh, because that will put them under stress.
0: That's brilliant. As an overarching wrapping question, I guess, um, what can credit unlock for the underbanked?
1: So this may sound funny to some of you. Uh, Our motto is making lives better with credit. And credit can, in its simplest uh, form, as an example, we provided loans for fertility treatments. So if, if you take a case like that, which is extreme, you can see the power of that but if you, if you go down to uh, somebody that's getting their first job and they need a car to get to there, you can make an impactful uh, decision for them in their lives, benefit. And you can use that starting relationship to provide them with education, which is a component where we need to go next now after cash flow and payroll deduction. Education is a big component. So definitionally, credit can unlock all sorts of things, home ownership or other inflection points that are material um, in, in an adult's uh, maturation and even college students' uh, uh, development. Right. Makes total sense. So with our last few minutes, we have some questions on the board so we can
0: hop on there. Um, the first is, can you say more about behavioral data? What does it look like? Where do you get it? How do you use it consistently?
1: I would say that, that again, that's common sense. Uh, so you think about the the population I just des- I described in a tricolor, um, that's incredibly impactful and obvious. Uh, we other end of the spectrum, we provide financing to a company called Luxury Lease Partners. They're providing leases for people and Ferraris and Lamborghinis who need them. <laughs> they are uh, cash rich, uh, FICO score poor. So in that context, what you do is you say, okay. What would, what would you have, how would you design the program such that they would be impacted heavily if they didn't make payments? So you, you use that starting point to help structure it. And the way that we designed that program was to uh, transform it from a consumer lease to a business lease, which means you weren't subject to Reg R and therefore if they defaulted, you had no duty to return their equity. So if you think about somebody that defaults on their house if the house gets sold for more, they get their equity back. In this context, where they might have to put up 20% against a $300,000 car, I know it sounds crazy, but they do it. They do it at extreme high volumes. Um, they would forfeit that $60,000. So that reality means that behaviorally, if you were one of these leasees and you were getting into financial trouble, instead of sticking your head under the sand and not making payments and hiding, you'll pick up the phone and work with luxury lease partners to see what you can do to recover your sixty thousand, well, you could probably
0: bring back the trunk monkey for that. <laughs> um, the next is what is what is one black hole you see in terms of data that is lacking for underbanked populations?
1: Well, there isn't a black hole. Uh, you know, the reality is there. There's more black holes that, than there is data. So, uh, what you have to do, if you're willing to do it, is uh, to work around the edges there and, and try to build out a probabilistic model and structure things again such that you're dealing with the black holes. So in a thin credit file, you don't have historic data with regard to uh, earnings, uh, employment, repayment, if they have credit, and other things like that. So definitionally, you're dealing with a big black hole, and you have to work around it. Um, Cash, ultimately, is still the black hole. Uh, Plaid and Finicity are great tools, and and it's great conceptually. uh, But they they break very often, uh, so you can't necessarily consistently rely on them. Uh, So I would say the, the single biggest black hole is getting access to the actual cash flows of a consumer or a business equally. Right.
0: And finally, what is the biggest challenge with the alternative data? in other words, uh, bank data i. e. bank data
1: Well, maybe uh, maybe whoever asked that could give us a little bit more color. If you're uncomfortable i can I can take a stab at it. Yes, sir. Oh, I mean the big, the biggest challenge is, is always that you think you can solve things with technology. You know, which you can. So we we have uh, a company called Ion, and they're an incredibly innovative uh, lender uh, focused on small businesses that is done through a bank account, which they are. So and, and their accounting software as well. So it's a. It's an all-in-one solution. So the underwriting model there is dependent upon getting the bank data, and literally in a matter of seconds, they can calculate a credit score and, and approve the, the applicant for a line of credit. So the cash flows are wonderful in terms of providing you with uh, an ability to make a decision around the profitability of the business, but if you rely on bank data alone, and you can't distinguish or pick up certain things, you won't know that that business has one customer or 100 customers. So it's 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 not so much the data that's the issue. It's the the way in which the underwriters look at totality of the picture and what technology can be used effectively to solve for, and when it can't, having the structure and enforcement to pick up the phone and do good old-fashioned underwriting.
0: Excellent. And my final rapid-fire question is, what gives you the most optimism in your space?
1: Well, Nigel said it well yesterday. Uh, Who knows if we're in the second inning or the tenth inning. What gives me the most optimism is uh, embedded finance. And and the ability for this tool to allow anybody to get directly to their customer, whether that's a consumer or a business. So the ability for uh, companies to embed finance into their workflow uh, to me is incredibly exciting and it's not that banks don't have a role to play. They absolutely do. But I believe that they're more efficiently designed and set up to be wholesale providers of capital and that the companies themselves, whether they're specialty lenders, fintechs, or embedded finance, are better at accessing and integrating directly with the customers. So that gets us super energized, and and I think we're in the earliest days of uh, embedded finance.
0: Fantastic. Well, that was incredibly insightful, and I was really glad to be chosen for this panel. And I want to thank you for your time and thank you out there.